Hello and welcome to this episode of the Cisco Tax Security Podcast, where our panel discusses all things security, including configuration, troubleshooting, uh, tips and tricks, and hot issues being seen by the Cisco Technical Assistance Center. I'm your host, Jay Johnston, and with me in the recording studio here in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, is Mr. David White, Jr. How's it going, David? Fantastic, Jay. All right. Well, it's a Tuesday afternoon. We're in here, and we're going to talk about network address translation on the ASA. So... Um, we've touched upon that in some of our previous episodes, but we wanted to spend a few minutes uh, and have a dedicated episode talking about um, NAT on the ASA and give you guys some tips and tricks about how to troubleshoot NAT and configure it and get the most out of your ASA with the NAT feature. So why don't we get started? Um, you know, we're going to talk about mostly focusing on version 8.4 and greater because, as uh, a lot of you know, we um, reworked a lot of the NAT feature starting in version 8.3. And we had a, a lot of good reasons to do that. For one, um, the old NAT configuration style really was uh, not uh, very well suited towards large numbers of NAT rules. Um, it wasn't very object-oriented, which made uh, making changes a real pain. And it just didn't scale very well, and it wasn't very flexible. So we'll talk today about why we made some changes uh, starting in version 8.3 and later, and also um, how you can get the most out of those features. So the first thing to talk about, and the, one of the biggest changes, is the idea of an object of type network that goes in the config. So David, why don't you talk about the object of type network and how customers can use that with NAT? Sure, Jay. So how NAT is designed now is you can think of it as you define your servers or groups of servers as network objects. Um, so you can say you identify a web server as being you know, host 10.1.1.2, and when you define that web server as host 10.1.1.2, you can automatically apply NAT to it. So the object is really a container which contains that server as you're defining it with a description and an IP address and what NAT you want to perform on that object. Additionally, you can uh, create an object of an entire network. So instead of just a server, you can define a network 10.2.1.0 class C, and you can NAT that entire network if you choose. So this is known as object NAT. Um, and again, it's we've got a little bit of an abstraction where you're defining objects or things in your network, which can be servers, it can be networks themselves, and you define them via their IP and or uh, address and mask, and you can apply NAT to them. Yeah, so if you're looking at the configuration of the ASA, you would see at the top of the config it would say object, network, and then call it DMZ server. And then while you're in object config mode, inside that object you would specify host blah, 10.1.2.3, and then you would hit enter, and then right there you would apply the NAT command to translate that object from one interface to another and, and specify what its global IP or its mapped IP address is going to be. And, and you see that NAT com config inside that object, right? So you can think of that object as a block, right? And, and, and that NAT config exists within inside that object. Yeah, and you can um, use these objects elsewhere, not just for NAT. So, for example, in your access lists, you can now reference those network objects as well. So um, you can define, this is really handy because, say you've got a server and you want to translate it to the outside um, 
interface with a mapped IP, and you have an access list permitting traffic inbound to that server as well. So your access list on the outside interface can refer to that object name. And then um, say you wanted to change the IP address of your server. Well, you'll just go into that object and change the IP address. And what that'll do is that'll change the NAT configuration. It'll also change the ACL, um, which references that object. So you can see how we're kind of going to a more object-oriented based configuration with these network objects. And they can be used for more than just NAT. So if you were to look at the running config of an ASA after you've typed in these commands, um, you've say you've got 15 objects and you've got uh, each one of those objects has a NAT entry in it. If you were to look at the actual config, and uh, some people are confused by this at first, uh, you'll see that the objects and their subnet definitions are at the top of the configuration, and then you'll see those objects defined again further down the config if they have NAT commands. Um, and the reason we do that is because since an object's NAT config can refer to another object, we have to load all the objects up into the firewall's memory as we're reading the config when it boots up. We have to load all those objects up first with their um, subnet information. And then after we've done all that, we can guarantee that then we can apply the NAT commands to them. So that's kind of why you see um, the object put in twice in the config, even though it's named the same thing. We have to do the subnet first, then we have to load up the NAT translations for it. So that's the most basic type of uh, NAT configuration. You know, back in version 8.2, you may be familiar with the idea of having uh, a NAT0 with an access list. Um, maybe you had a uh, NAT0 uh, with a network, or you had a static command. So starting in version 8.3 and greater, we don't have the global or the static commands. We just have the NAT commands. And the NAT command refers to objects or object groups, and it's the one command you use for NAT. Um, we, we've talked about object NAT, where you define, you create an object, and then you put the NAT command inside it. So there's another way that you can configure NAT on the ASA besides using object NAT, and that's by using what's called manual NAT. So David, walk us through manual NAT and tell us why we have it and how it's different from object NAT. Sure, so manual NAT is also known as twice NAT. Um, and what that means is literally, you know, as it sounds, you want to perform NAT two times or twice. Um, so for example, you have a source, say the source is on the inside and it's a... Uh, it's a web server, right? And you want to be able to have a translated address or a global address for that server. That's your traditional NAT sense. Twice NAT means not only are you going to be translating or NATing that source address, but you're also going to translate or NAT the destination address. So you're performing NAT twice on the same packet. You're going to do it both on the source address and on the destination address. And when you perform this functionality of twice NAT or manual NAT, um, that can only be done uh, when the NAT command is used as a standalone command and not embedded underneath an object. So that's one of the reasons why you would use the manual NAT command um, is if you need to perform the twice NAT functionality. The other reason you would use it is if you need to use the destination address as an identifier to determine if you want to perform NAT or not. Uh, let me give you an example of that. So again, we have this inside server. It's at an address of 10. 1.1.2, and it gets translated to some 209 address uh, on the outside global address. Now, you may want to translate that to the 209 address if and only if that server is going to a specific destination. So that destination, uh, you would put add a manual NAT rule, but that destination wouldn't be translated. It would only be specified. So for example, if that web server goes to a specific destination, only then do you want to NAT that source address, then you would supply that, supply that destination IP address in the manual NAT line. So for example, we'd have 
uh, NAT inside to outside uh, from 10.1.1.2 destined to 192.168.4.4. So on that 192.168.4.4, you would specify that IP address twice in the destination, which says don't translate it, but because it's specified, in order for that NAT rule to apply, that packet must be going to that destination. And that's policy NAT, right? That's saying translate if you re- you match some policy, and in this case, the policy is going to match on the destination and the source IP address. Yeah, so you, you match both source and destination IP. So if the source matches and the destination match, then you take the action, and that action is going to be most likely NAT the source and do not NAT the destination, or n- technically NAT it to itself. Okay, so the question is, have we lost you? <laughs> and the answer is maybe, but this is tough to kind of go through without looking at a live example. So um, refer to the show notes for the episode, and we'll have lots of nice pretty examples of object NAT, manual NAT, and then um, some other interesting um, use cases there as well. So, you know, as David said, we've got this object NAT uh, idea. We've got another type of NAT called manual NAT, where you're configuring the NAT translation in the base configuration of the ASA. It's not embedded within an object. And that's it. Those are the two types of NAT you can use. Um, Here's some key differences. So when you configure the NAT commands on the ASA, the ASA is going to take those rules, and it's going to build a NAT table. You can view the NAT table by running show NAT. Um, You can run show NAT detail, and you'll get a a little bit better output, in my opinion, which will show you um, the subnets of the different objects and kind of give you a more descriptive picture of the table. But that's the NAT table that the ASA applies towards the packets. So as packets come into the ASA, it'll look at the top of the, it'll look at the source and destination of that IP packet, and it'll run down the, the NAT table from the top to the bottom. And if it finds a match, it'll apply that NAT translation, and then it'll stop processing NAT. So that's... If you can understand that we've got the configuration, it builds the NAT table. You can see the NAT table is shown at detail. You can see the hit counts, right, to see which rules are matching. And that allows that, that's how the firewall does its thing with NAT. Um, and, and we should also mention that the NAT table that's stored internally is really broken up into three sections. Yep. So we call them sections one, two, and three, but they also have names associated with them. So the first section is what we call manual NAT. And, and that's what we talked about. When you use NAT command in the global configuration mode, um, it's typically used to do perform twice NAT or to perform policy NAT, as Jay said, where you're specifying both the source and the destination. Um, you know, that's, that's manual NAT, and that's in section one or that first third of the NAT table. The second portion of the NAT table is where your auto NAT or your object NAT policies or rules are. So when we introduced this episode, we talked about objects, Objects are containers, and they can contain a NAT rule that indicates what we should do with that object. Those NAT rules that are defined under the objects are in Section 2. And finally, there's a third section in the NAT table, which is manual NAT, but it's called after auto. Um, And these are manual NAT rules that a user manually inserts after the the auto or this... um, Section 2 NAT rules. So this allows you to determine when you're defining manual NAT, do you want that rule to become before the object NAT rules or do you want it to come after the object NAT rules? And by default, it will come, manual NAT rules will become before the object NAT rules, but you can specify after auto, in which case it would appear after the auto object NAT rules. Yeah, so the, basically, you know, we're talking about object NAT, we're talking about manual NAT. So what do you use, right? Well, the answer is, um, if you can, uh, try to use objects and try to use NAT inside those objects. So you configure object NAT. Um, 
for the most part, uh, that section two of the NAT table uh, David talked about, those, those sections are automatically ordered based upon um, whether there's static NAT, dynamic NAT on the object, or uh, the subnet mask of the object. So as long as you configure your objects correctly such that they're, they encompass the right network, right? So if you've got a slash 24 group of servers on the DMZ, you know, create your object for that specific slash 24. Don't make the object bigger, like slash 16 or slash 8. Um, as long as you do that, then the rule table on section 2, the object NAT, will order itself pretty much okay. I mean, everything should work okay. Um, if you were to add a manual NAT rule, that would go directly into section 1. And those rules aren't ordered. They're in the order they appear in the config. Now, you got some more, um, a little bit more flexibility there because you can manually move around the order of the manual NAT commands. Um, but for the most part, the object NAT section should order itself uh, pretty much okay. And for all our ASDM users, uh, when you go and look at your NAT rules in ASDM and you click the Add button, you'll see these three different options uh, to create a NAT rule, a new NAT rule. And those three options are ordered based on Section 1, Section 2, and Section 3. So the first option there, the Section 1 rule says, add NAT rule before network object NAT rules. The second one is add network object NAT rules, which is obviously rules that go in Section 2. And the third one, entry in that list, is add NAT rule after network object NAT rules. And those, again, are the manual NAT rules, which occur after the object NAT or the auto NAT rules. So our best practices are, you know, use object NAT when you can. Um, make the subnet or the range or the host as specific as possible. And uh, th that's y useful because you can reference that IP address. Uh, you can reference that object multiple places in the config, and it's easy to change it. Um, if you're going to, if you need to do policy NAT, um, then you know you, you know you need a not NAT traffic going over VPN tunnels specifically, or if you need to do policy NAT, then then go for manual NAT, and uh, again make those the objects you reference in that manual NAT statement as specific as possible. Again, and the reason I'm saying this is because uh, some of the TAC cases we get are when objects are created and used in NAT that are much more broad in scope than they should be, and that that can cause a problem in the table where your uh, packets may be matching a rule higher in the rule sequence than you intended. So that, that's why I keep stressing that. You know, make sure you make your objects as specific as possible. So let's talk about another feature that's heavily tied to that, and that's the real IP feature. So David, talk about real IP and what it is. So real IP is kind of what it sounds. Um, you know, on a physical host, it's going to have an IP address signed to it, and that's its real address. We, we say real in the sense that that device can go out on the network and pass through the ASA and get natted or translated to a different IP address. And we would consider that other IP address the mapped or the global IP address. So the real IP is the IP that's physically assigned to that device. Now it's important because, again, starting with 8.3 and later versions of ASA code, your ACL rules are going to refer only to the real IP address. And what this means is if you have a server on the inside, again, which is translated to a different IP address on the outside, typically, in, in earlier versions of ASA code, meaning 8.2 and lower, if you wanted to permit traffic to that server, you would, and that outside ACL, you would have to specify that translated address to permit traffic inbound. Starting with version 8.3 and later, you're using the real IP address. So not the translate address, but the real IP address, what's actually uh, identified on that server, what its physical IP address is. So there's a good reason we do that. and, and um, because we have this idea of an object, you know, if you were to change the 
IP address of your server uh, sitting in the DMZ, um, then you don't need to change the outside. The, you know, the outside access list can be referring to that object. Um, you've already got your NAT translation specified in that object, so all you need to do is go into that object and change the IP address that's uh, embedded in that object, and then your NAT and your access list are updated immediately. Um, another uh, really neat feature starting in version 8.3 with NAT is the use of the interface any. So specifically in version 8.2 and lower, um, a NAT translation could only be, a static NAT translation could only be applied between two interfaces. So you would use a static command and say your um, server was on the inside and you had a hundred different interfaces on your firewall. Well, if you wanted to translate that inside host to all those other interfaces, you would have had to create a hundred different, or 99 different static commands because it would be static inside outside one, inside outside two, inside outside three, you know, and it would have gone on forever. And then if you needed to change the translation, you would have had to remove all of those statics and then add them all back in as updated. Uh, by using the any keyword, we can take a NAT line, okay, and where you specify an interface, instead of saying, say, inside to outside, you can say inside to any, and that'll apply that NAT translation from the inside to any other interface of the ASA. So in this case, if you had 200 firewall interfaces, you could translate that inside server to every other interface with just one NAT line. Um, and that, that's, that's really handy. You can also specify both interfaces as any. So you can say NAT from any interface to any other interface when we see a packet sourced with you know, a specific IP, um, maybe destined going to, to some other specific IP address. And we'll go through some examples of how uh, people have used that to their advantage. So that's real IP and the any interface. Um, so those are really the main differences between version 8.2 and 8.3. Um, you know, to troubleshoot NAT problems, a good one is show xlate. That will show you the translations that have been built using the NAT rules. Uh, there's also show NAT detail. That'll show you the NAT table. Now you'll see that there are two, for each NAT line, you can, you'll be two counters, translate underscore hits and untranslate underscore hits. That's the number of new connections that have been initiated through the ASA in the direction of the translation. So if you have a server translated from inside to outside and new users are connecting in from the internet to that server, uh, you'll see untranslate hit counters go up for every new connection, just one per connection. And that's telling you that, um, the, that for that translation in the untranslate direction from outside to inside, which is kind of reversed from how you specified the NAT rule from inside to outside, um, we've got new connections using that NAT rule. Right, and, and it kind of goes back to the real IP addressing. Um, we have to untranslate that address first in order to then determine which access list entry would permit and or deny that, that entry. So, you know, that's why we, you see that untranslate because we've got to untranslate to then pass the packet through the ACL check and then determine if we're going to forward it or not. So let's say you've got a lab ASA and you've got a big complicated NAT rule table um, and you want to make sure that everything's, you know, correctly configured, but you don't have the actual, you know, network traffic flowing through it. So, David, what would be a great feature and tool that all our listeners should know about on the ASA that they could use to test this NAT table? YJ, of course, Packet Tracer. Yes, <laughs> David's baby. So tell us about how you can use Packet Tracer for this. So in that case, you would just uh, define Packet Tracer, uh, use the command Packet Tracer on the CLI, or an ASDM off the tools menu, the Packet Tracer GUI, and define the packet and what interface it's coming in on, and the output of that will tell you which NAT rules will be getting hit, as well as which lines in the ACL will be getting hit. So it allows you to easily identify if the packet is going to get uh, translated properly according to the rules that you 
implemented and if you implemented those properly or not. You could also use TCP ping. So with TCP ping, we've talked about that before. Uh, I think we've talked about that before on the podcast. Um, it's a new kind of ping command you can run from the ASA directly. You can run it from the command line or ASDM, and it'll actually send a TCP SYN packet through the ASA and then towards the destination server. And then if it gets a reply back, then it'll give you the bangs. Um, if it doesn't, it'll tell you that it didn't get a response or it got resets. Now, the cool thing about TCP ping is that you can specify the source interface or the client interface for the ping, meaning the ASA, If you see, let's say you're testing NAT connectivity um, and you're going to do translation for your inside users to the outside internet. You can say ping TCP and specify the inside IP address and give an inside user's IP and specify that they're going to this web server. And it'll actually virtually, it'll inject that fake packet on the inside interface, run it through the uh, ASA's accelerated security path and NAT rules and everything. It'll verify the packet would have been permitted and then actually physically send the packet out on the wire. And then when the packet gets back, it'll tell you that not only you know did we validate the outside um, network would pass the packet, but also that the ASA would correctly NAT it as you would expect it to. So TCP ping is a good uh, tool if you've got your ASA and you know you want to verify your config or that a server is actually up and listening on a TCP port, try out TCP ping. It's pretty good. One other thing to note is that previously uh, for the PICs and the ASAs prior to version 8.3, you always configured NAT from the perspective of the higher security level interface. And this was confusing for some some users because they said, well, if my traffic's coming from the outside and it's destined to a server on the DMZ I want to translate, um, then why do I have to configure my NAT rules from the DMZ to the outside? Because, say, my DMZ security level is 50, outside is security level 0. Well, the good news is that now the NAT policy is completely decoupled from the security level of the interfaces. So you can configure, you can Realistically, you can configure your NAT policies from the inside to the outside, or you can configure a, a very equivalent policy from the perspective of the outside in, right? So the order of the interfaces doesn't matter. Obviously, if you flip the order of the interfaces, you're going to have to flip the order of how you specify how the packet's going to get translated, but you don't have to worry about the security levels of the interfaces. Which and, is and just to you know go with an example of that, um, let's take the normal use case where you've got a server on the DMZ and it's being accessed by anybody on the internet. So in that case, you could define a NAT rule that said, you know, from the DMZ to the outside, you're going to translate your server, which is 10.1.1.2, translate to some public address. And if you don't specify a destination, it implies any. Now, the equivalent rule is if you have clients on the outside coming to the DMZ, you would have to specify a source address of any destined to an address of any or, or, sorry, translate into an address of any destined to the server-specific IP address, um, the, the translate address, and then the untranslated address of that server. So those rules are functionally equivalent, um, and, and that shows you that there's a decoupling of the security uh, security levels between the interfaces, and you can get equivalent NAT rules. Now, most people in practice still translate the addresses from the higher security level to the lower security level when they write their NAT rules just because it's simpler conceptually for them. But they are equivalent. Yep. So with each NAT line, uh, you know, when you're configuring it, we've got some keywords at the end that can help you tweak the behavior. Um, and so one of these is the no proxy ARP uh, keyword. So what this does is, by default, um, if the ASA changes the source IP 
when it moves the packet from one interface to another, then it will proxy ARP for the global IP address on that global interface. So if you translate a server from um, one IP to another on the outside, then if there's an ARP request for that global IP, the ASA will um, proxy ARP for it and reply to it with its own MAC address, and that's normal. Um, but there are certain network configurations where you might not want the ASA to proxy ARP. Now, in version um, before version 8.2, you could turn proxy ARP on or off for an entire interface all at once with the sysopt command, and it was interface-wide, right? Now we have the power to, on a per NAT line basis, turn on or off the proxy ARP feature, and that's by adding the no-proxy-arp command at the end of the NAT line. So if you think you're having problems with proxy ARP, you think that the ASA might be responding to ARP requests that you don't think it should, um, then you can you know, verify that with packet captures, maybe with debug ARP, and um, then also if you need to turn it off, just add no-proxy-ARP to the end of the NAT line. So there's another uh, neat tweak that you can use, and that's called the route-lookup keyword. So David, tell us what the route-lookup keyword does. So by default, um, when a packet comes into the ASA, the NAT rules are used to determine what interface the packet should egress out of. So they override the route uh, commands. By adding the route lookup keyword at the end of the NAT line, it says use the, the routing table to determine what that egress interface is. And if that differs from what where the NAT policy says it should go, then that rule doesn't get applied. And we'll go down and continue looking at the NAT rules in the NAT rule table. Um, we've also got some really neat features with PAT. So with port address translation, you know, a lot of uh, administrators configure port address translation for their ASAs because they've got a big group of users on the inside and they want to translate them to um, overloaded on one or two or three or some range of IP addresses. Uh, this used to be a pretty cumbersome thing for even our major ISPs to configure because, say, they had a, a global PAT IP pool of... I don't know, 100 addresses. Well, you know, you used to have to configure 100 different um, lines of config to translate those uh, to that global range. Well, so now we've added the pat-pool argument. So you can create a NAT translation and then use the keyword pat-pool, pat-pool, and specify a pat-pool, which is just a network object containing a range of IP addresses. And what this lets you do is specify that, you know, this large group of inside users are going to be translated to this pat pool. So by default, uh, the ASA will translate them all to one IP address, and once that IP address gets full, you know, there's no more uh, available pat slots that'll move to the next. The problem there was we had some major ISPs that did uh, pat for a large number of users, and if a lot of those users went to one website at the same time, then the internet server thought that it was being like denial of service, right, because it saw a lot of new connections coming in quickly from one IP address. So then we added another keyword called round-robin, and round-robin is going to do what you think it is. Uh, as new connections come in, it allocates uh, new inside hosts to be translated with the next IP address in the round-robin pool. So it spreads that out uh, a bit more evenly and doesn't uh, freak out <laughs> IDS systems or remote websites. Another keyword that was introduced is the flat option and you know that's an, an interesting keyword name choice right so what does that actually mean so you got to go back to um, you know the really old days of the PICs and when you define when you had a padded IP address the, the PICs actually carved up that PAT port range into three different unique ranges uh, the first range was from port 1 to 511 the second range was port 512 to 1023 and the third range was 
front ports 1024 and higher up to 65, 535. Now, when a packet came in that needed to get padded, we would look at the source port and determine which of one of those three ranges that packet fell into, and then we would pad it to a port, available port, in that same exact range. What the flat option does is it removes those three ranges, and it's one flat range from 1 to 65, 535. And I've, I've had a couple of TAC cases on this same problem. So one of them was maybe three or four years ago where a customer had a lot of IP phones on the inside that were all establishing these VPN tunnels out towards some server, but they were sourcing all their, UD, you know, their, for their ISOCAMP connections, it was always sourced from UDP port 500, which the ASA would then pat translate to this pool of from port 1 to 511. And obviously the problem there was they had more than 511 phones. All those patch translation slots filled up on the ASA and, you know, the 513th or 12th or whatever, you know, got dropped. So another interesting keyword um, that was added with 8.3 is the flat keyword at the end of a NAT statement. And what the flat does is you have to understand a little bit of the history of the ASA and the PICs. And that is when you're using port address translation or PAT, the device carves up that IP address into three different port ranges. Uh, the first is from ports 1 through 511, the second is from 512 to 1023, and the third is from 1024 to 65535. And based on the client that's initiating the connection and what its source port is, the ASA would map that source port to the appropriate port range, meaning if the source port was 500, then we would map it to a port in the range of 1 to 511. Now, if that port range got filled up, then we would deny that connection or that translation and say, sorry, we don't have any available translation slots, even if all 65,000 uh, ports were available from 1024 to 65535. Yeah, it's locked. It's like locked yeah. into that range. It's locked into the range. What the flat option does is it basically says, we're not going to allow you to use the lower two port ranges, the 1 to 511 and the 512 to 1023. So by saying flat, it says, okay, we've just got a flat value of port ranges, and those start at 1024 and go up. Um, so if that same client initiated connection, source port of 500, it would then be put into the 1024 to 65, 535 port range, and a translation would be created. Yep. Then there's there's also the include reserve keyword, which you can use along with flat, and that, that just completely removes any port ranges and the valid global port range is 1265535. Right. It extends it back down to what we call those reserved ports, um, which is between 1 and 1024. And, and w when you think of using the, the flat option, that's how iOS NAT or iOS PAT uh, behaves today. Yeah, so what's our recommendation? Uh, leave it alone. Don't use these keywords unless you have a lot of, you know of a lot of applications that are um, sourcing traffic from these lower range source ports. Other than that, it should be fine. Um, so if you're interested in understanding how your port address uh, ranges are being utilized, you can run show NAT pool. And actually, that'll show you that for a given IP, it'll show you the TCP as well as the UDP ranges of ports. And it'll show you the three ranges, 1 to 511, 512 to 1023, and 1024 to 65535. And it'll show you exactly the number that have been allocated to that. So our recommendation, uh, don't mess with it. You know, if Unless you know that you have a lot of clients or applications that are sourcing traffic from these low ports, it's probably best to just leave it alone um, and, and not have to worry about it. Take a look at ShowNAT pool and see how your allocations are spread out, and that'll give you a better idea of what's going on. Yeah, or, or you can look at your syslogs, too. We'll generate a syslog message if we're unable to pat 
the translation because you've run out of ports. Um, and there's two options, um, as we mentioned. One is to just an, add another IP address to your path pool, or you can use the flat range, and, and that should take care of it. So one other concern that some of our um, our customers have is if they're, they have a very high rate of PAT translations. So this is kind of a corner case, uh, but consider like a mobile ISP or something where there's a very high rate of translations. Well, um, you know, we will build, if we need to build a new connection through the firewall and it's being subjected to PAT, we'll build the, the XLATE first, and then we'll build a connection that kind of rides on that XLATE. Then when the, the connection's done, we'll tear down the connection, but we'll wait 30 seconds before we time out the paddock slate. And that's, you know, if the, if in if the inside host wanted to reuse that same port, it built a new TCP SYN connection through the firewall with that same source port, we would reuse that XLATE. The problem there is that if there's a very high rate of connections, since we've got 30 seconds for those to time out, those XLATEs to time out, you could reach a situation where you start to build XLATEs and not tear them down for 30 seconds, and you could exhaust or really use up a lot of translations quickly. So we added a specific command to mitigate that, and it's the per-session-xlate command, and it's in version 9.0 and greater. And you can specify what specific TCP or UDP connections uh, the, the ASA should immediately tear down the xlate once the connection, the associated connection, is torn down. So that can help um, if you have uh, you know, a high rate of xlate creation for PAT and you're concerned it may be eating up too much of your uh, PAT pools. There's another um, benefit of using this new type of NAT capability, and that is if you have an internal web server that you want translated to two different IP addresses, so you want that web server to be available via multiple IP addresses, that capability exists today. You can create static NAT statements for that web server uh, internally and have it known by two or more global IP addresses, all of which are active. Now. That might be useful to use if you've got a web server that, based on the host command that's coming in to the request, you're going to send them to a different site. So you've got one server that's hosting multiple virtual websites or virtual different domains, and you want each of those to be going to a different IP address. So you have that capability with 8.3 and later, which you didn't have before. And another reason why that might be useful is if, uh, for instance, you're changing the DNS entry uh, for your you're changing the DNS entry so it points to a different global IP on the outside of the ASA. Well, there could be a period of time while the global records change for all the DNS servers where people may be resolving that host name to the old IP versus the new. Well, you can get some transition time in there and have both global addresses point to the same insides. I think it would also be good to you know just do a recap um, to talk about the object NAT versus manual NAT and when to use each of them. So as Jay mentioned before, you know by default you should use the object NAT or what we call the auto NAT. Um, it, it creates a nice, easy way for you to define NAT while you're defining your objects, which you then reuse in other parts of your config, like the ACLs. Um, you know, the, the NAT table automatically gets or, ordered properly. Um, you avoid a lot of um, accidental NAT config, misconfig issues. Now, manual NAT is needed when you need to do quote-unquote policy NAT, right? When you want a NAT based on the destination of where the traffic's going, or if you want to do NAT exemption. So you have a need to do NAT exemption. And where this might come into play is you can say for you know all hosts on the inside, I want them to be translated or padded to a specific address on the outside. But I really have an exception. You know, if a specific host on the inside goes anywhere on the outside, I don't want it to get NATed. So you can write a NAT rule that actually NATs it to itself. 
um, based on the destination or any destination. Uh, so that's another example. O or if you're doing uh, VPN traffic, right? Again, you don't want that VPN traffic to be natted. By default, it's not. However, if you do create a larger, more broad NAT rule that encompasses a VPN traffic, then you need a way of excluding that VPN traffic from being natted, and you can actually create a NAT rule that says NAT it to itself, such that it doesn't get natted. And for those customers that want to upgrade their ASAs, they're running version 8.2 and they want to upgrade, we recommend that they upgrade to either version 8.4.6, which is the latest, latest maintenance release in the 8.4 train at the time of this taping, or version 9.1.2, which is the latest maintenance release in that train. It'll The ASA will boot up. It'll see your old 8.2 config. It will migrate it to version, um, you know, this new NAT syntax, and you'll see it doing that. It'll give you some console messages. And then everything should functionally still be the same. Um, if you want to, and again, from our TAC troubleshooting experience, right, the main problems we see are where objects that are used in NAT configs are not, um, you know, they're, they're too broad or they don't match the traffic that you're actually looking for. So if you're troubleshooting NAT problems, first stop, check your syslogs. Second stop, try Packet Tracer and see um, specifically what, um, you know, NAT rule you hit. And then uh, from there, try TCP ping and show xlate and show NAT detail. All those commands will give you a good picture of what your ASA is doing with NAT. So that's our episode. Uh, you may be in the car. You may be walking your dog. You may be on the train. You may be driving the train. Hopefully you're not listening and driving the train. It, and don't, don't tell them to text and drive. Yeah, don't, don't text and drive. But when you're at a stop sign... Yeah. Or maybe not even then. When you're in your driveway and your car's off, please do right then reach out to us. We'd love to uh, hear from you about what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. We also really like to hear who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Seriously, we networking. really do. We, we read and respond to every message we receive. Yes. So uh, if you would, you know, when you get to your office or when you get home or um, you get off the plane, let us know. Uh, send us an email at securityshow at com, Or you can tweet. You can DM us at... And our Twitter handle is at Cisco Tech Podcast, and we'll make sure to respond to every uh, every uh, reach out that we get. What did you say? DMS? DM, direct message. Via Twitter? Via Twitter. Oh. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Dave's never used Twitter. <laughs> <laughs>